this will be a different episode. I'm working solo without any sort of brewery representative today. In all honesty, I'm not even really speaking about a specific brewery at all. In this episode, along with, with many of the following episodes in this month, will be very Louisville-centric. If that does not interest you, well, you can turn this off. Now, it is currently the month of May, so the Kentucky Derby is admittedly on my mind, and, and as, as I was contemplating the idea of building breweries, I, I realized that, that the brewery owners were not the only ones responsible for their businesses, funny enough. Communities, economies, and, and local government play a large part in the building of breweries. In the next few episodes, I will be speaking specifically with Louisville Breweries and, the, and their founders. At the end of the month, my plan is to interview Mayor Fisher of Louisville, uh, perhaps a craft beer nerd in his own way, about breweries being built and, and how they shape communities, and, and perhaps kickstart gentrification of poor neighborhoods. But that's to come. This episode will seem out of place, but that's okay. Once the next few episodes are digested as a whole, you may understand why I started out with this episode and, and this specific topic. The puzzle pieces will come together and, and you get the idea. You see, I'm, I'm going to be speaking about an event that shaped Louisville, Kentucky, my own hometown, uh, that may not necessarily revolve totally on one specific beer or one specific brewery. Of course, it does a little bit, and, and you'll understand what I'm getting at towards the end of this episode. But I'm intentionally leaving out some names. That being said, there may be things about this topic that could potentially upset you. Truth be told, both sides will be upset. If they aren't, I, I probably haven't really done my job in conveying the story properly. While, while offending groups is not necessarily my goal, perhaps it is fitting enough to show certain aspects of societies and communities do not change. It is true what they say, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. Whether or not you live in the city of Louisville, you, you probably don't know much about the Bloody Monday riots. Truth be told, I didn't know more than just the name. I didn't know when it happened, I didn't know where it had happened. I didn't know why it had happened. I saw it on a plaque once and thought it was mildly interesting. Oh, look. This is where that happened. That one day. Way back when. I never gave it a second thought. Let's go back to the 1830s and 1840s of Kentucky. Germans, specifically of the Catholic variety, were migrating to the city of Louisville and the Irish soon followed. There are many reasons why they chose Louisville as their home, and honestly too many to count. I will say once they arrived, they realized that Louisville, Kentucky had a very similar climate to what they were used to in Germany. Well, what does that mean? It means they could farm. It means they could grow their barley. And this is a river city prominently located on the Ohio River, which means that if they wanted to get their hops they could very easily transport it uh, to them via boat on the Ohio River. And yes, don't get me wrong, bourbon is and was and the, the, the commonwealth's drink of choice. Distillers were rising and producing constantly. But this isn't a show called Building Bourbon. But now you have a large population about one-third of the Louisville citizens to be German immigrants making beer, and, and the Irish would join, uh, of course, as well. By the mid-1800s, Louisville was home to approximately 50 to 75 operating breweries. 
Surprisingly, this isn't unusual. Most towns had a large number of breweries back then. It seems like a lot. But without transportation, the common man was mostly confined to his own neighborhood, which, of course, was home to the local neighborhood brewery and the local neighborhood saloon, which you'll soon hear more about. And they weren't just casual drinkers, folks. They, they were drinkers of their time. We're talking long 15-hour shifts at the brewery, hot as hell, drinking beer all day without even feeling a buzz. Their wives would bring them all lunch and dinner, and you have to realize that the public parks didn't exist. So on the weekends, mostly on Sundays, all they had was the neighborhood beer garden, which was family-focused, oddly enough. Beer was quite literally the center of their lives and livelihood. In fact, the good Catholics that they were had a festival, which would rival today's Oaks Day. And for you non-Louisvillians, Oaks is a citywide holiday in Louisville, and it's the day before Derby. Schools and most offices are closed. So this great festival took place at the beginning of Lent. Bach Day. Bach Beer. Which was stored all winter long in a cool climate. And it was released at the beginning of Lent. Why? Well, you see, Bach Beer was the lifeblood of many German monasteries during Lent, specifically the Palmers. They fasted from quote-unquote real food during the time of Lent, according to their monastic rules, and, and found that their Bach beer held many of the same nutrients and vitamins required in their daily nutritional values. It was the official Lenten beer. It was liquid bread. Clearly, our German-American citizens carried that tradition over. For 61 years, until Prohibition, Bach Day was celebrated. And, and oddly enough, until March of 2016, just recently, that tradition was lost. I will say, thankfully, Louisville brought back Bach Day in the form of Bach Fest, complete with goat races and all. More on that, that in future episodes. And Bach wasn't the only beer of choice, however. The Kentucky Common was a, was a beer for the common Kentucky man. In actuality, it is said to be one of the three styles of beer that are truly indigenous to America. If you're curious about the other two, they, they were California Common and the classic American Pilsner. Now, one reason why the Kentucky Common was so popular was that it was fermented at a higher temperature, which was ideal for the climate that we're currently in, in Louisville, Kentucky. It was and is a dark, creamy-style beer. It was always consumed fresh, always on draft. It was always sold in kegs to local saloons while it was still fermenting. This was a beer that was inexpensive to make, quick to produce, and people liked it. There was a turnaround time of six to eight days. So now if you can picture, we have, we have the city of Louisville filled with, on the face, all these drunken Catholics. And, and by the way, they were all Democrats. And to some people, this wasn't a really good look. Because on the opposite side of the Democrats stood the, stood the Whig Party, filled with Protestants. The Whig Party did not necessarily like that image. The immigrants were faced with vulgar, verbal, and sometimes physical attacks daily. In 1844, an election year, a German editor of a local local newspaper asked his fellow immigrants to take up arms to the polling booths to vote for Democrat James K. Polk in the presidential race. Can you imagine that scenario playing out today? You, you see, because they were immigrants, they, they were seen less than human. Even if they were citizens, they had no say in the electoral process, even if they were legally allowed to vote. Imagine that you, 
Imagine those that you considered to be less than human now have weapons. Now afraid, the Whig party did not put much of a fight at the polling booths that day. They let the Germans and the Irish Catholics and the Democrats vote. James Polk became President Polk. Whig party candidate and, and famous Kentuckian, Senator Henry Clay lost, and the immigrants were to blame. Let's fast forward a few more years still to 1849. A group called the National Center Union of Free Germans, the NCUFG, in Louisville emerged and, and was urging immigrants to retain their native language and customs. The NCUFG also promoted, you know, wild notions like the, like the abolition of slavery and equality for black men. These drunken immigrants were starting to become a political force. By 1852, the Whig Party dissolved, divided over the issue of slavery. In the void, the American Party, otherwise known as the Know-Nothing Party, officially emerged. Maybe you know them from the 2002 film Gangs of New York, with, with Daniel Day-Lewis playing a fictionalized version of the Know-Nothing's leader, William Poole. But I, dig but I digress. The Know-Nothings considered themselves old American blood filled with white Protestants and family men, holy men, American men. They thought the immigrants would eventually ruin the American way of life. Does that sound familiar? Things don't change, folks. Now, the name of the Know-Nothings, if, if you're curious, is, is quite literal. They were, they were no named as such uh, because when they were asked about what their organization did, what the American party did, Members were told to say, I don't know, in order to keep business secret. In truth, one of their main goals was to keep Catholics out of office, as they feared the influence of the Pope and, and didn't really necessarily want the Catholic Church to have influence over American life and politics. And, and they were successful. On April 7, 1855, no-nothing candidate John Barbie was, was elected mayor of Louisville. And by early May, the party had infiltrated Jefferson, Jefferson County's city hall. The know-nothings were on top and held political office over the 50,000 residents of Louisville, Kentucky. Now imagine if you were a member of the know-nothings and you remembered that it wasn't that long ago that immigrants flocked to the voting booths with weapons for purposes of self-defense or maybe in your eyes for destruction of the American way. You probably feel afraid. These people, the, these immigrants conspiring against you in your political office during the election season could very well take control once again. How do they stop it? Well, they're Catholic. Maybe they begin to patrol the churches. Does that sound familiar? It should. About a month before Bloody Monday, September of 1855, mobs from the Know Nothing Party searched local Catholic churches, such as St. Martin's and the Cathedral of the Assumption, for weapons and explosives that they believed were stored there, and of course they didn't find anything. A few days later, almost all of the Catholic teachers were fired by the Louisville Public School Board. In the Louisville Journal, an editor named George Prentice called his fellow United States citizens, the Know-Nothings, to arms in an advertisement that might intimidate the staunchest of immigrants. And I quote, Let the foreigners keep their elbows to themselves today at the polls. Americans, are you all ready? We think we hear you shout ready. Well, fire. 
and may heaven have mercy on the foe, end quote. Can you imagine, no matter what side you were on, reading that and feeling all sorts of emotion bubble up inside of you? If you were a know-nothing, you, you felt inspired, and, and if you were German, Irishman, or Catholic, you felt threatened. What a powerful message. Monday, August 6, 1855, Election Day. On the day of the election, the know-nothings the, the took control of the polls, all eight of, the, all eight of them representing the eight wards of the city. By setting up thugs at the door and, and, and demanding to see yellow tickets, a signal that the person voting was with a know-nothing party. All these actions were backed up by the Louisville City Police, of course. Needless to say, the immigrants weren't exactly happy about being prevented from voting. Remember, 11 years prior, they had to take up arms uh, just so that they could go to the door and to be able to vote. They weren't happy, not one bit. One man, a know-nothing, George Berg, was beaten to death by a group of angry Irishmen. This is all going on while a German man fired shots at a passing carriage on the corner of Shelby and Green. After the first shots were fired, the know-nothings came out in uncontrollable mobs, as they were prepared to do regardless, I believe. They burned a whole row of, row of houses in the Irish district, burned several people to death, and, and hanging a few more before tossing the bodies into the flames. It's said that an old Irishman was pulled from his bed and killed for just being an Irishman and a Catholic. Armbruster's Brewery, located at Baxter Avenue between Liberty, Liberty Street and Jefferson Street, was one of Louisville's first breweries, and, and Armbruster's was, was attacked during the afternoon of Bloody Monday. The rioters, after swilling the brewery's products, beat the employees and burned the building down. Ten were killed. The adjacent Green Street Brewery was also attacked, but rioters failed to burn it after three attempts. You see, breweries were clearly a target, but that wasn't necessarily it. Cannons are rolled to the doors of St. Martin's of Tours Church, the Cathedral of the Assumption, and St. Patrick's Church were all searched for arms. In fact, St. Patrick's was a fairly new church. It was founded in 1853, so just a couple years prior, and it was Louisville's first Irish Catholic church. Well, the know-nothings attempted to hang Reverend Thomas Joyce, and he was the first pastor of the parish. Thankfully, he was eventually cut down before any fatal damage was done, but truly chaos controlled the civilians. Now, to his credit, in such chaos, Mayor John Barbib, despite being a know-nothing himself, saved two of the Catholic churches from destruction, one being St. Martin's, and, and called an end to the bloodshed. As the riots wound down eventually, many Irish and German immigrants were taken to jail. Though no one was ever convicted of any crimes, all in all, about 22 people were killed, many more injured, and, and dozens of buildings, churches, houses, and breweries, really anything that signified that you were Catholic, an immigrant, or a drinker, had been burned down. If you're keeping tabs, that's perhaps 50 to, 50 to 75 breweries that are now gone. Now, most of the dead were Irish and German, making it likely that the know-nothings did more damage than those that they took to jail. But uh, remember who started it. I mean, the, the Irish and, and the German did go on the offensive. The next morning, and I bring this up because I think it's, it's important and powerful, play-by-play uh, -play of the riots were reported in the Louisville Daily Journal. And I quote, We do not know when or how their plan of operations were devised. 
Indeed, we do not care to know when such a system of outrage, such perfidy, such dastardly was conceived. We, we only blush for Kentucky, that her soil was the scene of such outrages, and that some of her sons were participants in the nefarious swindle. It would seem impossible to state when or how this riot commenced. By daybreak, the polls were taken possession of by the American party, and, and in pursuance of their preconcerted game, they used every stratagem or device to hinder the vote of every man who could not manifest to the guardians of the polls. His soundness and the know-nothing question. We were personally witness to the procedure of the party in certain words, and, and of course we feel authorized to speak. We saw two foreigners driven from the polls, forced to run a gauntlet, beat unmercifully, stoned, and stabbed. In the case of one fellow, Honorary William Thomason, formerly a member of the Congress from this district, was struck from behind and, and beat. His gray hairs, his, his long public service, his manly presence, and his thorough Americanism availed nothing with the crazed mob. In the lower part of the city, the disturbances were characterized by a greater degree of bloody work. Late in the afternoon, three Irishmen going down Main Street near 11th were attacked and one knocked down. Then ensued a terrible scene, the Irish firing from the windows of their houses on Main Street repeated volleys. Mr. Rose, a riverman, was shot and killed by one in the upper story, and Mr. Graham met with a similar fate. An Irishman was discharged a pistol at the back of a man's head, was shot, and then hung. He, however, unlikely survived both punishments. John Hudson, a carpenter, was shot dead during the fracas. After dusk, a row of frame houses on Main Street between 10th and 11th, the property of Mr. Quinn, a well-known Irishman, were set on fire. The flames extended across the street, and 12 buildings were burned, destroyed. These houses were chiefly tentative by the Irish, and upon any of the tenants venturing out to escape the flames, they were immediately shot down. No idea could be formed on the number killed. We are advised that five men were roasted to death, having been so badly wounded by gunshot wounds that they could not escape from the burning buildings. At one o'clock this morning, a large fire is raging in the upper part of the city. Upon the proceedings of yesterday and last night, we have no time nor heart now to comment. We are sickened with this very thought of the men murdered and houses burned and pillaged that signalized the American victory yesterday. Not less than 20 corpses from the trophies of the wonderful achievement. End quote. What a scene. It was truly a, a deadly uh, social riot in our history. Though he wasn't officially charged, George Prentons of the Louisville Journal faced a lot of backlash of the, after the riots, and because people believed that the articles in his newspaper urged people to fight. So many seeking someone to point the finger at blamed him for starting the riots. Who knows? I, I believe both sides were, may have been seeking blood that day. Obviously, the know-nothings won the election since they couldn't let anyone supporting the Democrats to vote. The riots in the election outcome caused over 10,000 German-Irish Catholics to pack up their bags and leave Louisville. The beer, for the most part, stopped flowing. The Catholic drunken mindset was defeated, and the majority of the breweries uh, shut their doors. It is in my opinion that the riots, the environment leading up to the riots, and, and the, the events after the riots could be evidence on why the Volstead Act of, of 1919 was enacted, and I'm talking about prohibition. Louisville's story wasn't necessarily unique, but at the same time, I, I believe that the, the Bloody Monday riots were an explanation and an example for where the country was headed towards that time. 
If you can picture it, saloons were everywhere nationwide, as many as one saloon per 150 to 200 people, hard-pressed to earn profits. Saloon keepers sometimes introduced vices such as gambling and, and prostitution into their establishments in an attempt to earn more profit. If you've seen Tombstone or, or really any Western movie, you have an idea of what I'm talking about. What kind of scene that is. Many Americans, specifically those that belong to the know-nothings, considered saloons offensive and noxious institutions. The Prohibition leaders believed that once license to do business was removed from the liquor traffic, the churches and reform organizations would enjoy an opportunity to persuade Americans to give up drink. It is believed by some that this was the perfect route to, nonviolently, stop the immigrants from invading and corrupting the American way of life. They got rid of the immigrants to get rid of the beer, and naturally, if, if they outlawed beard, beer, they could alienate immigrants and be sure that they conform to their American way of life. Get rid of the beer. Get rid of the immigrants. Maybe that's a stretch. I think this was an important story to share, and, and I'm sure there, there's someone in, out there that, that could provide more information on breweries during this time and, and uh, what breweries specifically suffered the most damage and, and probably could have better insight as to what beer these folks were drinking in that time period in, in this region. But I wanted to share the story to set up an era in, in American history where, where beer wasn't always seen as an American tradition as it is today. And if I were to wrap it up, I guess the point of all of this is that communities and breweries and, and the people behind those breweries have an effect on our society and politics. Indirectly, breweries were probably on a list of grievances by the know-nothings. As you know now, this resulted in a terrible catastrophe. Now you will see in future episodes with the other Louisville breweries coming up, how breweries can positively shape and change communities. Now folks, if, if you like this topic, perhaps you would be interested in, to learn more about the Prohibition era. I'd like to suggest a book for you, if that's okay, and it's called Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. If you're like me and don't necessarily have the time to sit down with a good book and actually read, perhaps you'd like to think about switching over uh, to audiobooks. If that's the case, I'm happy to tell you that Audible.com has teamed up with the Building Breweries podcast, and we have made a special offer for those of you that might be new to Audible. If that's the case, I'd like to give you one free month subscription to Audible.com, where you can view hundreds of selections in audio format, including the book I just suggested. Again, the title is Last Call, The Rise and the Fall of Prohibition. In addition, I'd like to just go ahead and give you one free book, and it's on me, on the Building Breweries podcast, and read whatever you like. If you're looking for another suggestion, I would also suggest Beer School, and that's written by the good folks that founded Brooklyn Brewery. If you're interested in this topic, visit www.audibletrial.com slash building breweries.